Okay, guys, why don't we uh, turn back to the Ephesians chapter 4 where we left off this morning. This time you want to open your Bibles instead of using that sheet. Okay, guys, as our custom, we'll stand and read Ephesians 4, verse 17. So this I say and affirm together with the Lord that you walk no longer just as the Gentiles also walk in the futility of their mind being darkened in their understanding, excluded from the light of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the hardness of their heart, and they, having become callous, have given themselves over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. But you did not learn Christ in this way, if indeed you have heard Him and have been taught in Him, just as truth is in Jesus, that in reference to your former manner of life you lay aside the old self, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lusts of deceit, and that you being renewed in the spirit of your mind, and put on the new self, which is in the likeness of God, has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. Therefore, laying aside falsehood, speak truth each one of you with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Well, one of the big lessons we learned uh, this morning was that the battle for living a victorious Christian life uh, begins in the mind. And the reason we determined the importance of this is because how we think determines our behavior. This was true for the Gentile way of thinking, in which they were, um, Paul mentioned that these men and women back then were uh, walking in ways that were uh, displeasing to the Lord, embracing lives of sensuality. But this, of course, began in the futility of their mind because they were darkened in their understanding and they were ignorant and had hard hearts. All this reference, of course, being to the mind. But this is true for the Christian as well in that the, if they wanted to live a victorious life in the Lord where truth was found in Jesus, they were going to have to have a mind transformation to walk away from the formal Gentile life and to embrace the truth found in Him. And uh, this became the sort of apparent as we worked through that this morning. Well, Paul uh, goes into a long list uh, in, in verses 25 all the way into the beginning of chapter 5 describing all the areas of life in which he wants us to put off the old self and put on the new. Uh, it'd been fun to tackle all the different things uh, that he talks about, but topically it'd be too much information to go over on a houseboat weekend. So I decided to just speak on two areas of the Christian life that he wants us to embrace and put on that new clothing. And they both involve our speech. And so the first area we're going to look at is this idea of putting off falsehood. So you'll notice in verse 25, uh, Paul says this, Therefore, laying aside falsehood, speak truth, each one of you, with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. This uh, word for falsehood in the Greek language is deception, to be, de to, to be deceived. And so Paul's instruction, instruction at the basic level then is that in our communication with one another, we are not to deceive one another into thinking something is true when it actually is, isn't. Um, Paul in the uh, parallel passage in Colossians 9, 3.9, when he talks about the same subject matter, doesn't use the word falsehood there. He uses the word lie. He says, do not lie to one another. So in Paul's thinking... Falsehood and lying are interchangeable uh, in terms of the, his understanding. But we're going to discover soon that there were slight nuances to this in the Old Testament 
and I, we will discover those together as a group. But before we get into the specifics of this, I want to make a preliminary comment as to why believers are not to be associated with such behavior. As I began to study this, I quickly realized how much scripture was actually dedicated toward the subject of lying, either through the Proverbs or through um, places like, say, in James, or uh, specific stories in the Bible that where damage was created through deception. But what instantly jumped out at me was God's attitude towards it. You see, it's not something that he displeases or, or just uh, sort of um, doesn't sort of think that's too great of an option for you. It's actually something that he hates. It's something he hates, he, det he detests. Proverbs 6.16, if you're taking notes. There are six things the Lord hates, seven that are detestable to him. Arrogant eyes. Number two, a lying tongue. Hands that shed innocent blood. A heart that devises wicked schemes. Feet that are quick to rush into evil, a false witness who pours out lies, and a person who stirs up conflict in the community. So seven detestable things he hates, and two of the seven are in the area of falsehood or lying. We'll come back to this in a minute. Proverbs 12.22, this is what it says there, Lying lips are an abomination to the Lord, but those who deal faithfully are his delight. The word abomination is, is really to be something that's repulsive or, or loathsome or detestable. And there's eternal consequences for being known as a, one, a practicer of lies, being a practicer of lies. Proverbs 9.19, or sorry, 19.9. A false witness will not go unpunished, and he who tells lies will perish. And in Revelation 21 verse 8. Uh, a list is given of those who will not inherit the kingdom of God. And he describes practicing people such as murderers, people who are immoral, people who practice witchcraft. But he, in that category, he throws in liars who will not inherit the kingdom. So you can see then that God takes it seriously and has a disdain for it. And so because this is so true, we need to get a better understanding then of what constitutes lying and why does he hate it so much. So I want to take, first talk to you about the different forms that deceptive speech can take on. Now, you probably, as you, you notice in, the, in uh, Proverbs 6 and 19, he gives two different categories of lying. I'll read it to you again in, in Proverbs 6.16. He says he hates a lying tongue, but he also hates a false witness who pours out lies. And in 19.9 he says a false witness will not go unpunished, but he who tells lies will perish. So in both places, he distinguishes between a false witness and a liar. He makes two distinctions there in the Old Testament, granted that Paul uses the words interchangeably in the New. So we should probably discuss the differences between the two. My suggestion, and I'm going to suggest it from Scripture so in a second here, but my suggestion is to be a false witness is when one intends to give a false description about someone else. It's an accusation against someone else that's false, whereas being a liar, the intention behind it is to give a false description of oneself. It's to give a description of oneself in a false way. How I discovered the difference comes from the study of the Eighth Commandment in the Ten Commandments. Uh, God said to Israel, Thou shalt not bear false witness, now watch this, against thy neighbor. So when you're a false witness, it's against someone else, not against yourself, in that specific language. Now, the word false there in Hebrew is just means to, to make any speech, describe any speech or activity that's groundless 
without basis in fact or reality. And again, this is not something that's groundless or without fact or reality in oneself, but against thy neighbor. So, God was really forbidding any Israelite to make an accusation against a fellow, a fellow countryman that was not based on reality. And he went to great lengths to make sure this would not occur. He put two provisions in the law to ensure the safety of this false witness. You can write this down in Deuteronomy 19, verses 15 to 21. Here's what he did. To protect against false witness occurring in a civil trial, or against any personal vengeance been taken out against somebody, because you can imagine that, right? If, if I had a beef with someone because I just simply didn't like them, if I could, if I could just accuse them of something false and try to preach it as true, I mean, I could get them in a lot of trouble. And as you know, the Old Testament penalties a lot of times were pretty severe. So this was a, to protect against personal vengeance, God did two things. First, no accusation or charge could ever be made against a person without two or three witnesses. So I couldn't uh, go up to Bryce and accuse him of anything unless, say, Gabor and Terry had, had also witnessed that thing. And so we went to trial. It wasn't just my word against um, Bryce. I had two other men who could substantiate my claims. So there was a necessity of, of more than one witness. The second thing he did is, if your, if your accusation against someone was proved to be false and you were lying about it, the punishment that was intended for the person you wanted to, be, to, to receive it would be given to you. So if I made up a lie about Bryce and it was deemed that I was actually, uh, sorry, if I made an accusation against Bryce and it was deemed that I was untrue in my statement, what was intended for him in punishment was to be given to me. And in verse 21, God said this, you shall show no pity. No pity. He says, life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. So I'm just, let's say the penalty for stealing uh, was cut off the hand and, and I accuse him of that, my hand would be cut off. It was pretty severe in terms of the uh, punishment. So, a great legal system, right? Great justice system. Man, you thought twice about being a false witness in God's economy. Okay, so again, being a false witness is to distinguish from being someone who's a liar, who has a lying tongue, as Proverbs suggests, because a lying tongue, then, one would make grandiose and false statements about oneself. About oneself. But the most prominent example, probably, of a false witness that we know in the New Testament was through the stoning of Stephen. The stoning of Stephen. You remember in Acts chapter 6, uh, he's uh, taking some Jews to task uh, over, over defense of Jesus being the Messiah in the Old Testament scriptures. They can't hold a candle to him. Um, he's also performing, performing signs and wonders, and, and, the, and the crowds are just baffled by this guy who can, who can defend the scriptures. Uh, make them look silly, and has obviously been empowered by God to do miracles. They can't get this guy, and so they don't also have power to do anything about uh, getting rid of them because they're not part of the Sanhedrin. So they, what they do is get them before the Sanhedrin, who can make up, who has the authority to execute punishment. They get two, they get false witnesses in place to say that Stephen was saying negative things against God, and so they and Moses. And so they put two false, uh, or I think it's more than, maybe it's two, or maybe it's more. They put false witnesses forward, and they accuse him that he's speaking blasphemous words against Moses and God. And you know the rest of the story, the Sanhedrin, like, finds him guilty. And next thing you know, Paul is part of this execution of Stephen. And it's interesting that Paul's the one saying, never be a false witness as a Christian. Mm. <laughs> and he's the one that was in favor of being a false witness when they executed Paul. So, anyhow, this is interesting. Okay, 
So we are then, obviously, to put false, being false witnesses, we, that's a behavior that we are to also be very careful of. Never to make accusations against someone else that are not based on fact or reality. How about the various forms of lying? Okay, what do they look like? Because this is where you make personal statements or descriptions about yourself um, uh, and um, that are not based on truth. So what are the various forms in which we can lie? Shading the truth. That'd be one form. This is where you only tell part of a story. So you intentionally leave out the part that the person really needs to hear or deserves to hear to fully understand a particular situation. That's when your wife asks you why you were late. And um, there's three reasons why you were late. One will not get you in trouble and two will. And so you come home and you tell her the reason why she, you were late and so she accepts the answer and you get off scot-free. But really, the two that she needed to hear were actually the ones that were, that were in place, were, were, were withheld, right? And if those things come out later and she really finds out, there's going to be some relational damage in the home. Cheating, another form of lying. When you copy someone else's ideas and take credit for them as if they were your own. So you're in school and you want an A, but you haven't put the time in or the effort in or you struggle in the subject. So you uh, cheat through different means to get an A, but you, if you hadn't cheated, you would have got a C. But then when your grades come out, you tell everyone that you're on the honor roll that year, uh, or you got an A in that class for the teacher assigned you like a high grade. So again, it's a form of lying. We can do this too in our jobs, through uh, taxes, with the way we handle money, and all sorts of things. And I want to share a story with you. Um, those of you who are self-employed, like I was, uh, this is a very realistic possibility and temptations high. So. Um, when I was doing massage therapy uh, with, in my personal training days, um, you would get $500 a year. Most people got $500 a year coverage through their, through their health benefit programs. And so um, I had a woman who would come uh, to us for therapy and she'd use her entire $500 up in, in my gym. Uh, so she came to me one day and says, Andrew, uh, my husband has, has none, touched none of his policy he has $500, would you be able to just write uh, a receipt in his name, but I'll come for all the treatments? And I said to her, I said, uh, like, I'll be honest with you, like the temptation was very big because it's $500 cash. There's no way anyone would ever know. There's no way of proving it. And I said to her, you know, I was getting, my heart was pounding because I just hate that kind of, I don't like being put in those positions. I just hate it and I hate conflict. And she said, I said, sorry, I just can't do that. And then she, but she didn't take no for an answer. She kept persisting, persisting. And I had to, I think on two or three occasions in the same conversation say no over and over. And she finally left me alone. But if I were to do that, I'd be lying. I'd be lying because I declared that she had, he had come for treatments when he actually hasn't. And I would have done it for material gain, for financial compensation. And the only person who would have known would have been the Lord. But that's why I couldn't do it. <laughs> All right. Failure to keep promises. This is when you say you'll do something for someone and fail to deliver on your word. I can relate to this because it's a real temptation for those of us who are people pleasers. You hate to say no to people, so you promise the world, keep saying yes, 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 I'll do it, I'll do it, but you become overwhelmed and even forget sometimes because you just can't meet all the demands that you've promised. And so 
you don't even remember half the things you say, but the people you promised remember, and you lose credibility because they think that you've lied to them because you've promised something that you haven't done. Excuses. When you make excuses. This is similar to failure to keeping your promises because you've made a promise and haven't delivered, but when you're challenged, you make a long list of reasons as to why you failed to deliver on your word. And you don't take responsibility for the real action of why you forgot to, to come through. We see this in Saul in 1 Samuel 15. He's told by God to eradicate all the Amalekites. And the reason is that the Amalekites were horrible to Israel in their history. Saul, through God's help, gets defeat of the Amalekites in war. And uh, he doesn't kill all, uh, the king and spares all the livestock and whatnot. Samuel comes and says, why haven't you obeyed the command? And Saul, instead of saying, taking responsibility for, for his own personal actions, blames the people and the pressure they put on him for the reason why he didn't follow through with obeying command. The punishment to Saul was, the kingdom is gone from you. We can't have anybody who who's, makes excuses, basically, and disobeys the God as king of Israel. How about when we betray a confidence? Conrad comes to me and says, Andrew, I want to share something with you, like, you know, deep secret that I'm trying to wrestle through in my walk, and I only want to tell you because I trust you. And I say, no problem. Then I turn around two days later and say, Mitch, you want to know what Conrad said to me? Mm -hmm. I've, told Con <laughs> I've told Conrad that I would not tell anybody, and I've lied to him when I betray the confidence. Mm, but Mitch will pay you. <laughs> yeah. Well, from all the dishonest money he's made in his business, uh, he would be able to pay me probably pretty well. Yeah, all those massages. <laughs> yeah, totally. yeah. You know a good example of that? Samson's wife. Samson's wife, Judges 14. Samson has got a wedding coming up. He, uh, he uh, on, on the way, like during the wedding prep, something happens and a lion comes after him. He rips the lion apart. Bees go into the carcass, make, make honey. He, it's, it's, it's the week of the wedding and it's a week-long feast. And uh, Samson wants to like, you know, play intellectually, play an intellectual giant with his guests. And so he says, he makes up a riddle about this, uh, makes up a riddle about the bee and the honey and so on and so forth. And the, and the lion. He gives them seven days to solve the riddle. They can't, after day three, they can't solve it and they know they're, they're in trouble. And they, there's a financial reward to either of the one who can solve the riddle. If, if uh, Samson, if they solve the riddle, he pays them healthily and material financial like uh, prosperity. If they can't solve the riddle, Samson gets all the, 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 the financial prosperity. In the end, they can't do it, so the men go to his wife. And they say, go get the secret out of uh, secret out of Samson. And she manipulates them and he tells her in secrecy. She goes and tells the men and they solve the riddle. The disaster that comes out of that, the tragedy in terms of loss of life, w when you read the story, because of that betrayal of confidence is unbelievable. Flattery is another sense of lying. This is when you tell someone something that isn't true about them so you can get something from them. Maybe you want them to like you, and that's why you give them flattery. But you don't actually mean it. It's not a true statement. You're just looking for... It's not, it's not a compliment. Like a compliment is saying something true that is trying to uh, um, just to, you know, build them up. Flattery, is like in, in the negative sense, is when we're trying to say something that's not true about them in order to get something from them. Great popcorn, Mitch. 
Yeah. I have excuses for it. It was the pot. It was the pot. <laughs> See, we're just helping you demonstrate it. Yeah, totally. I burnt the popcorn last night, so. Okay. And I blame the pot. <laughs> so everybody on the recording is going to hear the yeah. cannabis. But yeah. <laughs> Sorry, Genesis. Yeah. yeah. Well, Kevin can edit a lot of this anyway. Okay. <laughs> All right. Finally, exaggeration. And the, I'm not saying this is an exhaustive list. These are just things that, that came up to me through studying the scriptures or, or uh, like finding, well, yeah, getting examples from scripture or just um, just sort of common sense and real, and, and real life experience. Exaggeration um, is youth, uh, yeah, exaggeration, and you guys who fish know exactly what I'm talking about here. Uh, <laughs> this is when you blow your stories out of proportion. Okay, you inflate details to make yourself sound good, and or you do it to get off the hook if you're guilty and so on. Yeah, <laughs> no pun intended. And Dan doesn't know I'm saying this um, because I've never actually it's not a portrayal of confidence. But uh, yeah, Dan doesn't know I'm saying this because it was something that's come to me. I didn't realize this, but he revealed to me accidentally that I actually was guilty of being an exaggerator. And how, because how, what happens with me normally in conversation with a lot of people is I'll tell my story and people listen, they might smile or just ask, like, you know, but they don't really respond with questions. They just listen and they kind of quite the story's over and we move on. Dan's inquisitive. So I'll say something in a story and he'll say, oh, tell me more about that. Or really, did that actually, you actually said that? I can't believe you said that or you did that. And then I'm like, wait a minute, I didn't actually say that. I didn't actually do that. It didn't actually go that way. So through my conversations with them and Bryce, even like on Wednesday afternoons, I was over time realizing that I actually tended to always add that extra, you know, you know, instead of jumping 14 inches across this pond or whatever, I jumped 15. And instead of like, you know, doing five push-ups, I did six. And it was always just something extra, always something extra. And I was like, man, I got to stop this. It was just, it's so anyway, I just say that to you because especially you young guys, uh, trying to get sort of getting the social pecking order amongst your uh, social groups uh, you might want to inflate your stories to make yourself look funnier sound cooler whatever it's actually a form of lying because if they actually call you out on it like Dan did without even knowing it you're lying to them and so they believe your stories and you go off and someone else goes and tells your story and they're like that's not what actually happened that's not what he actually did and so on all right so why did we do it then if these, if these are all the reasons and God hates it, why do we do it? I was able to go through scripture and find some pretty solid evidence for why we would do this. The first one would be to cover guilt. We lie to cover guilt. It's a form of self-protection when a reputation's at stake or we're exposed for wrongdoing. If you're writing notes down, Genesis 39, 6 to 18. Joseph is a handsome man. Potiphar's wife really likes him. She makes several advances on him. He rejects her. One day, she gets herself in a situation she can't, she can't get out of. Uh, he, she makes an advance, grabs his outer cloak. He runs from her bolts. Her, his cloak is stuck in her hand. He's second in command to her husband in terms of charge over the servants. What is she going to do? Instead of telling the truth, she screams and the, the servants come running and she says, he tried to lie with me. In other words, tried to rape me. The result, as you know, is tragedy for Joseph in the final outcome. But he, he wanted to cover his guilt. And I would suggest that for the major reason that we often lie, even as Christians, 
is we cover to cover guilt. We know we've been exposed and we know we've let someone down and so what we do is we lie in order to get out of it so we don't look as bad as we actually are. I would encourage you, if the Lord's speaking to you about anything in the area of covering guilt right now, that you deal with it between Him and yourself and the person that you are hiding from. Jealousy is another reason why we would lie. Um, this is when someone makes you feel inferior, makes you feel inferior. This is found in Genesis 37, if, again, if you're writing things down. Joseph, remember what happens to him, his father prefers him over the other sons. He makes it evident by giving him a special piece of clothing. The boys get jealous of him and they decide to get rid of him. They want to kill him and so they take him away from home, but one of the brothers wisely convinces them not to kill him, but just to, um, like, you know, just to just sort of like make him scared for a little while. Anyway, the, uh, the ends up that they end up selling him into slavery and uh, when they come home, they take the coat, they kill a male goat, they pour the blood on the coat, and they tell their father, they tell their father that a wild animal got him. And of course, Joseph goes into complete deep mourning for a long period of time. Probably never got over it, to be honest, until he was revealed to him in Egypt once again, uh, 13 years later. Um, so the point, though, is jealousy was the, the means by which they devised the plan to end up lying to their father. Revenge, another one. Revenge is when things are rooted in bitterness and anger. Um, Acts 16, 16-24. Paul and Silas are in Philippi. They're preaching the gospel. And this fortune teller is following them around. And the fortune teller is, is uh, obviously heard them speak the gospel a few times. And so what's happening is she's going or, or yelling out what's gonna, what they're going to say. Or telling people what they're going to say before they say it. And... Uh, over time, Paul and Silas get frustrated with her, like being interrupting their ministry, and Paul rebukes the demon out of her. And so she's no longer fortune-telling and doing this. The master that owns her, or her, I guess her employer, finds out. And uh, to get back at him, for revenge for the loss of his prophets, it says in verse 20, he says, These men are throwing our city into confusion. And, they, and he, the master said this before the civil courts in Philippi. And you know the verdict, they were beaten and thrown into jail. What's the passage there? Uh, Acts 16, 16 and 24. Desire for personal gain is another one. And I got, there's two, er two ways, an A and B. The first area in the area A would be for uh, materialism or financial gain. So desire for personal gain in the area of, of financial reward. This is 1 Kings 21. Ahab is the king of Israel. Naboth has a tremendous vineyard that he wants. He asks Naboth, Naboth for it, and, and uh, Naboth says, no, you can't have it. Ahab goes into depression, starts sulking, is frustrated, and his wife Jezebel says, what are you doing? What are you doing sulking? Just go take it. You're the king of Israel. And so she said, let me handle it for you. So what does she do? She throws a party for Naboth, puts him at the head of the table, brings two false witnesses there, two false witnesses there to testify that they heard him say that Naboth cursed God and the king. So this whole thing happens. Uh, they, they claim that Naboth did this. And because there's two witnesses, three wit right, two witnesses, which is fulfillment of the law, we discovered in Deuteronomy, the accusation becomes true and they kill Naboth. And they kill him. And it's easy, like I said, for me too, like to, to be a false witness and to tell lies even with my job example with the money. 
It's easy to want to lie for the purpose of financial gain. And finally, to bolster one's reputation. Desire for personal gain in terms of popularity. This is Acts chapter 5 with Ananias and Sapphira. You know the whole situation. The church is growing like crazy. The people with extra properties and extra homes that are like it's additional to their regular homes. They, the wealthy, I guess you could say, are selling their properties, bringing the money to the apostles to distribute it to the needy church. And um, Ananias and Sapphira come forward and they present an offering to the church as if it's the full amount, but they've kept back a portion from themselves. And Peter says to them in verse 3, Why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back some of the price of the land? And the whole issue was they wanted to make themselves look more generous than they actually were in front of other people. So it had to do with their own personal reputation and their own appearance within the church body. So why aren't we to do it then? What is it, that, what is it against lying that, we, that God would, for, doesn't want us to be part of this behavior? Well, we discussed, first of all, that God hates it, right? That's a big reason. We want to align ourselves with the Lord. The second one is a no-brainer from the things we've discussed and the stories we've discussed, the damage it causes. The damage it causes. I mean, Joseph's family torn apart. His father had depression over the issue. Um, in the case of Potiphar and Joseph, and sorry, Potiphar's wife, there was a loss of work, a loss of reputation, um, a loss of freedom. He was in jail. With Paul and, Paul and Silas, it was a loss of freedom, but there was also physical abuse that occurred to them as a result of the lies. Naboth epitomized them all. It was a loss of life. And the list can go on, and we know as both victims and perpetrators of falsehood and lying how much damage this stuff can cause. The second, or the third reason I should say we should avoid it is because of our association with Jesus Christ. Our association with Jesus Christ. Let's look at verse 20 again in chapter 4 of Ephesians. You did not learn Christ in this way, if indeed you have heard him and have been taught in him just as truth as is, is in Jesus. Look at 24. And put on the new self which is in the likeness of God. So you're in God's image, created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. So we have, we have um, the, these Christian men and women who are reminded that uh, Jesus is the source of truth. That's not only what he says, it's who he is in essence. That's right. And we are in the likeness of God, created in, the, created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. It's not a coincidence, I, don't, I think. I don't think it's a coincidence, I should say, that he speaks about truth, 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 and then the first thing in verse 25 is, therefore, don't be a liar. <laughs> right? So it's our association with Jesus Christ, the fact that we're united with him in faith and united to him in his death and resurrection, that we're to reflect the very essence of who he is. And in Hebrews uh, 6.18 and Titus 1.2, we know that the scriptures there say that God never lies. God never lies. So it makes sense then that those believers who are bear his image, we are to speak in a manner that reflects our relationship to him. There's a, you may have heard this um, story. I didn't meet this man, but I, I heard it through another pastor telling, either a pastor or something, a journal I read like years ago about a Christian employee who worked for a secular boss. And the secular boss made it clear to the Christian employee that I think he was his secretary or his sort of like his go-between 
And the Christian boss says, one of the rules when you, what you need to follow when you work for me is that if I tell you that I'm not here, I'm not here. Because I get a lot of phone calls of people trying to like, uh, you know, do business with me or sort of like, uh, even maybe it's like the telemarketing type phone calls and that. You know, always are trying to like get advertising from me or whatever. I just want, uh, I need you to just basically protect my, my space and my boundaries. And so that your job is to be a gatekeeper for me. And so the Christian like heard this and sort of like, like you know, moved on. One day the phone rings and the guy, the Christian answers it and asking for the boss. The guy walks in his office and hands him the phone immediately and says, the phone's for you. The boss takes it, gets off the phone and says to the guy, come here. Uh, I thought I told you that the stipulations for working for me are that uh, you never do that. And the Christian turned to the boss and said this. He said, if I can lie for you, I can lie to you. If I can lie on your behalf, I can lie to you. And the... Uh, and the Christian boss from that, or the, the secular boss from that date, that gave him tremendous respect. And he said that the, the guy that knew him said that this Christian fellow became his most trusted confidant in the business because he knew that he had his back because of his character and his, um, his ethics as a follower of Jesus Christ. Again, so why aren't we... Um, yeah... Why are we to be known as speakers of truth? Because we represent Jesus Christ, who is truth. And finally, we have to tell the truth because of the threat it poses to church unity. Verse 25 in, in uh, Ephesians 4. Therefore, laying aside falsehood, speak truth, each one of you, with his neighbor. For, here's a substantiation, we are members of one another. So speak truth because we are members of one another. Paul's concern here, of course, is that is for the potential damage it can cause to the church in terms of its unity. So while the church might be made up of different individuals and different members, we Paul understands that we are one body. Other New Testament passages make this very clear. We're individuals, but we're one body. The result is a single individual then can impact an entire congregation for the better or for the worse. If speaking truth then in love is not the foundation of our communication with one another, it's a recipe for disaster and causing disunity. If we're not honest with one another either, how can you or I come alongside one another when we're dealing with issues? How can we properly minister to one another if you're, we're lying to one another? How can we take time to pray appropriately for one another if we're lying to one another? How can I take care of your needs you take care of mine if we're lying to one another? These only create barriers in developing trust. And you and I know this. Trust takes years to develop and only a second to break. I could have a friendship with you for 15 years and in one, li one lie or one slanderous moment or one gossip, and I can destroy that relationship. And it, take, it can take tremendous amount of time, if ever, to regain that to the fullest degree. So, simple place to start. Every Sunday morning. How you doing? Ben, how you doing, Gabor? How you doing, Lauren? I'm good. I'm good. Really? Yep, I'm good. I hear it all the time. 
Yet I had a phone call earlier that week from the spouse saying my marriage isn't good. Another phone call, I was in hospital. Someone, did you know someone was in hospital? No, I didn't know that. Talk to those people every week. How are you doing? I'm good. I'm good. I'm good. I, as a pastor, I'm not taking care of the flock properly. I'm not praying appropriately. I'm not making the right phone calls. I'm not uh, knowing how to minister to any of their needs because I'm... No, it's not, again, it's not like no one's trying... They're probably just... They're not trying to do it in a, in, a, in a spiteful way, but they're ultimately not telling the truth, which doesn't allow me to do my job well. And it doesn't just end with me or start with me. It's the whole church. We can't properly take care of one another if our foundation is not built in truth. If you're doing good, then say you're good. But if you're really struggling, say something else. Like, you know what? To be honest with you, it wasn't the greatest week. But you know what? I, if, you, if you'd like to help me at all in this area, I would love for you just to pray for me. And I don't want to get into specifics right now. It's a little personal. I'm trying to work it through. But in the big picture, this is the category of life I need help in. And just say that. As a person listening, I'm like, awesome. I know how to appropriately take care of you this week. Finally, is it ever morally, morally permissible to tell a lie? Is it morally or ethically permissible to tell a lie? Uh, this is a good one. <laughs> I'm going to, well, I'll just say it. The answer is no, based on our definition of lying. So here's a definition of lying we've come up with today. And hopefully you see it through the scriptures. Our definition of lying so far is that you're using deceit for self-promotion. Self-promotion, which is like covering guilt, uh, re revenge, so on and so forth. Or another's demotion, being a false witness. In other words, slandering someone or a false accusation. So our definition of lying is being using deceit for self-gain or to demote somebody else. So that would be the definition of lying that we come up with. So therefore, it's never morally permissible with that definition. But there are two stories in the Bible we need to work through if we're going to further this conversation. And so we're going to end our time together by looking at two passages. Turn with me to Exodus chapter 1, verse 15. One fifteen, And I'll give you the context before we actually uh, dive in. Actually, the whole, the whole story is from one fifteen to 21. We're just going to pick a couple of verses to read. But let me give you the context. Israel uh, has become a nation because Joseph has come with his brothers. Years go by and they've multiplied from 70 to... It's hard to know the numbers, but probably a couple million... I mean, that's, that's what I've heard as estimations. But regardless, they've grown numerous to the point that Pharaoh is nervous. Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, says, you know what? They're growing so big that if anything ever happens in a military war or a military, they can rise up and take control of our nation, and there's nothing we can do about it. We are, we are outnumbered by the Israelites, and if they ever have a coup, uh, we're done for. We lose power and authority. So he comes up with a two-part plan to put them in subjection and to minimize the threat. One was to put them in slavery. The second one was to commit mass genocide. He wanted all the baby boys to be killed and all the girls to be spared. What he would do then is prevent the birth rates, or sorry, prevent the spread of the male, or sorry, the, the line of the Hebrew people. The key was that the king 
asked the Hebrew midwives to be the ones that commit the genocide. It was the Hebrew midwives that he wanted to kill, kill their own people. The king finds out that the women do not take this order to, to heart, and they choose to spare the lives of the children. And the king finds out, and he calls the women in and says, What are you doing? And we pick up the story in verse 18. We're going to read 18 and 19. The king of Egypt called for the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this thing and let the boys live? The midwives said to Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not as the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwives can get to them. Okay? Which will not be a true statement. Not a true statement. Look at God's response in verse 20 and 21. So God was good to the midwives, and the people multiplied. Because they, um, sorry, uh, multiplied and became very mighty because the midwives feared God. They feared God. That's why, that's why God rewarded them, and he established households for them. That's a pretty important uh, understanding of what's going on here. They're described as God-fearers, and there's a reward for them because of their deception of, to, to Pharaoh. One more story, and we'll work out the details in a second. Joshua chapter 2. verse 1 to 7 and that's the context of 1 to 7 we won't read the whole thing I'll just summarize things for you and then give you the verses that are important Israel has come to take to the promised land they've already defeated substantial nations and kings and their reputation is preceding them and Rahab knows that Israel's coming for them next and she's worried she knows that they're going to be smoked by the uh, by the Israelites she's heard about the reputation of being masters of war and that God's with them in victory. And so she aligns herself with Israelite as a Canaanite by taking the spies that Joshua sent to spy out the land before they take the city. She, she rewards them by hiding them in her home. Hiding them in their home. And the king again uh, finds out about this. And look at verse 4 of chapter 2. But the women had taken the two men and hidden them. And she said, Yes, the men came to me. But I did not know where they went, where they were from, which she did. It came about when it was time to shut the gate at dark that these men went out. I do not know where the men went. Pursue them quickly, for you will overtake them. And she said this, and they were still in the house. Okay? The reason why this is important is in the, the, the New Testament defines Rahab as a champion of faith. A champion of faith. Hebrews 11.31, Abraham is mentioned as a champion of faith. Gideon, David, some monsters in, in, in God's uh, history. And guess who's named as a champion of faith? Rahab the harlot. James 2.25, James is arguing that faith without works is dead. Right? Faith without works is dead. You'll know a Christian by your, their fruit, basically, right? He's talking in this, and he uses Abraham first as his example. Guess who his second example is? Rahab. He says this, In the same way Rahab, or talking about uh, faith without works being dead, he says, In the same way was not Rahab the harlot also justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? So how do we answer this? The lesson here that I've wrestled with 
for quite a while and me and Dan went back and forth like toe to toe for about an hour on this very just these two passages alone here's the way I've summarized this uh, and you can support it or push back at me whatever in dialogue I understand that that this could be a contentious uh, passage <laughs> but here's the answer it appears that there are, there are occasions when deception is ethically permissible Okay, remember the kind of lying and falsehood that God's in disagreement with is self-promotion and another's demotion. What's going on here? Self-sacrificial love, the need of another, is at the heart issue in this one. It's not the promotion of self, it's the promotion of someone else beyond yourself. It's, it's a self-sacrificial love in action. In the examples I gave, it's the preservation of life at stake. And God loves life. But like, so sacrificial love and not personal gain are the motivations behind deceptions. And we have a very modern example of this in Corey Tamboom, who you all know. You know, the woman in, in the war who was hiding Jewish people in her home. And the Nazis were knocking on the door saying, are you hiding Jews? And she said, no. I don't think God's going to say, Corey, come here. I've got to talk to you about something. You're a liar. Eternal consequence for you, hell, over this, these, this, you know, over what you did for those years and during the, the concentration camp. There's a, there, she's not. She, in fact, if she gets caught, not only is it not self-promotion, she dies because she's siding with them. So she has everything to lose in the deception. So there's absolutely no self-promotion going going on there as well. So that's a concrete example. And I love what Sam Storm said from Dallas Theological Seminary. Seminary. He said. A lie is an intentional falsehood that violates someone's right to know the truth, but there are cases in which people forfeit their right to know the truth. Instances like atrocities that violate God's moral law, right? Things like that. Like a good example is this. This is my own experience too, and I think you could all relate to this. Um, uh, I'm not, this is outside of the preservation of life. And again, I, you can see the difference in terms of deception or lying. My wife threw me a 40th birthday party four years ago. She lied to me through the teeth for a month. Where were you, honey? I was shopping. Where were you, honey? I was doing this. What are you up to? I was doing this. She lied to me constantly. Even the night of the party, she said, we're going out for supper to, um, um, I forget the name of the restaurant in South Calgary, and she invited two guests with us to make it look like an official party. We're on our way, and we take a detour to DeWinton. And uh, some of, I don't know if any of you were there, but some of the people on the other boat had, were there at that party. I never took Janice at the side at the end of the night and said, Honey, I, I'm so frustrated with you for lying to me for that <laughs> month. I'm so mad at you. Our marriage is on the rocks. We need marriage counseling. Why not? Because the deception was ethically for my benefit. It was to make me feel loved and to actually make me feel secure. Again, so again, so, so did she technically lie? In, the in our definition of lying, it wouldn't be called lying. Because ours is for self-promotion or others' demotion. In this category, I guess you can maybe technically, she was deceiving, but for the purpose of love. The purpose of love. And God would be of approval of that, because it was about my benefit and not hers. Okay, there we go. So, uh, there could be like about six or seven lessons out of this, mini lessons. I just, for simplicity's sake, made two short ones realizing that this will propel further discussion in the bigger picture. So lying, lesson number one. Lying or falsehood. 
lying or falsehood is when one attempts to deceive another into believing what they are saying is true with the intention of self-promotion or another's demotion. Lying that God would disapprove of would be one that attempts to deceive one another into believing what they are saying is true with the intention of self-promotion or another's demotion. Again, distinguishing between a lying tongue and a false witness. Second lesson, believers are not to be known for deceitful language for four reasons. One, God hates it. We're not to be known for deceitful language for four reasons. God hates it. Number two, the damage it causes, which is illustrated through all the stories. Number three, because of our association with Jesus Christ. And number four, because it destroys church unity. Let's have a time of discussion.